here, 1 John 3, but the third epistle of John. It's right before Jude and Revelation. Having found that, pray with me. Father, as we look into your word, or better yet, as we look into our life, Lord, we realize that we are needy. And we know that your word says that you will sustain us by grace through your word. And so, Lord, as we come to you hungry and feeling malnourished, we come expectant that you will bless us. Bless us with truth from your word that we might be nourished. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. Father, I pray that you would take away all the distractions, all the thoughts about today and this week and this month, and that you would allow us to focus our attention and continue worship through the ministry of the word. Father, work through me despite my own sin. Father, help us, for we are very needy. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Third John. We're going to do the whole book. You know, whole book today. You know, this year we'll have gone through three books, and I've done two of them. All right? Because I did Philemon, and I'm doing Third John. And Bill, he's stuck on Mark. I don't know what his problem is, you know? Some of you college students may never get through Mark, you know, in your entire college career. Um, but let's, uh, let's read Third John. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out and receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church by Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone. And even by the truth itself, we also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Now, as we look at this book in particular, we need to think about who the author is. And I would say that the author is John. It's 3rd John, and historically that's been a little bit disputed, but I would say that 3rd John is the author. And as we think about the Apostle John, in the context of of the New Testament, there's some things we need to think about, because oftentimes Peter and Paul get all the praise, okay? Because Peter, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth, you know, so they're always talking about him. And Paul, Paul is always establishing churches all over Asia Minor. And so as Peter and Paul are working on the construction of the church, John is sort of silent, And we don't hear a lot from him until the end of his life where he begins to write. John's writings are some of the oldest that we have in the New Testament. And yet John writes a significant portion of the New Testament. For instance, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So as we look to John, we have to ask the question, who is he? Because we we hear about Paul a lot. 
because he's in Acts. And we hear about Peter and, and Paul and what they're doing. But a lot of times we forget about John. And as I was thinking about John, I realized that I forget about John. And I want to read something for you guys. And I want to trace who John is, what he's done, so that we get a, a flavor for who he is. So I'm going to read something out of Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church about John. And this is what he did. And this is amazing because I forget these things about the Apostle John. So, so listen carefully. I also t- I warned everybody, by the way. I warned, I'm going to warn all the youth that are sitting around there since I'm the youth pastor. If you fall asleep, I will call you by name. And any adults who I, whose name I know, I'll do the same thing to you. So there you go. Anyway, let me read this. And this is about John. Hear what John did and just be amazed by this. He was not only one of the twelve, but the chosen of the chosen three. Peter stood out more prominently before the public as the friend of the Messiah. John was known in the private circle as the friend of Jesus. Peter always looked at the official character of Christ and asked what lie or what lie in the other what, what should I, what should he and the other apostles do? John gazed steadily at the person of Jesus and was intent to learn what the master said. They differed as as the busy Martha, anxious to serve, and the pensive Mary, contented to learn. John alone, with Peter and his brothers James, witnessed the scene of the transfiguration and of Gethsemane, the highest exaltation and the deepest humiliation in the earthly life of our Lord. He leaned on his breast at the Last Supper and treasured these wonderful farewell discourses in his heart for future use. He followed him to the court of Caiaphas. He alone, of all the disciples, was present at the crucifixion, and was entrusted by the departing Savior with the care of his mother. This was a scene of unique delicacy and tenderness, the Mater Dolorosa and the beloved disciple gazing at the cross, the dying Son and Lord uniting them in maternal and filial love. It furnishes the, the type of these, those heaven-born spiritual relationships which are deeper and stronger than those of blood and interest. As John was the last at the cross, so he was also next to Mary Magdalene, the first of the disciples who, outrunning even Peter, looked into the open tomb on the resurrection morning, and he first recognized the risen Lord when he appeared to the disciples on the shore of the Lake of Galilee. He seems to have been the youngest of the apostles, as he long outlived them all. He certainly was the most gifted and the most favored. He had a a religious genius of the highest order, not indeed for planting like that of Peter and Paul, but for watering. Not Not for outward action and aggressive work, but for inward contemplation and insight into the mystery of Christ's person and eternal life in Him. Purity and simplicity of character, depth and ardor of affection, and a rare faculty of spiritual perception and intuition were His leading traits, which became ennobled and consecrated by divine grace. Let me finish with this. There are no violent changes reported in John's history. He grew silently and imperceptibly into the communion of his Lord and conformity to his example. He was in this respect the antithesis of Paul. He heard more and saw more, but spoke less than the other disciples. He absorbed his deepest sayings, which escaped the attention of others, and although he himself did not understand them at first, he pondered them in his heart till the Holy Spirit illuminated them. His intimacy with Mary must have aided him in gaining an interior view of the mind and heart of his Lord. He appears throughout as the beloved disciple, in closest intimacy and in fullest sympathy with the Lord. John, I think, is oftentimes the forgotten apostle. He is the one who has the intimate relationship with Christ because he has such a deep love for the gospel. He has such a deep love for the truth of Christ that he cannot allow anything to denigrate who Christ was or what he did. 
And in doing so, because of John's love for Christ, he is compelled, because of his love, he is compelled to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So that's who John is. That's who the author is. Here's a guy, you know, he was at the crucifixion. Christ gave him his mother to take care of him. You know, take care of my mom as I die, because she is dear to me. You know, he, he outraced Peter. You know, he was the first to recognize Christ. And now he has the task of writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so, knowing who he is, why does he write 3rd John? I mean, what's the point of writing 3rd John, this letter, to Gaius, which doesn't, you know, it seems disjointed. And the only way that we can understand, well, anything in the, in the New Testament or the Old Testament is, is through context and what's going on. And we have to look at the reason that he writes 3rd John in, in 1st John. Because in 1st John, he actually goes into the theology of what's going on. You know, he, what, what compels him to write this letter? And the reason he wrote it was because there was a heresy going throughout the church. And so turn with me to 1st John. We're going to look at that. First John chapter 2, verses 23, 22 and 23. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Here we see that people in the church who had come out of the church were now saying that Jesus wasn't the Christ. He was not the Messiah. That is clearly non-biblical. That is clearly not a church. If someone were to stay up, stand up here and tell you that Christ was not the Son of God, He was not the Messiah, He is not a pastor. And you are not in a church. Even though the sign on the, on the, coming in the parking lot might have said so, it is not true. Look further at uh, John 4, verses 2 and 3. This is the major one John deals with. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So there are people out there saying that Christ really didn't live. He didn't, or He didn't come in the flesh. He was not really a man. Christ was not a man. And this was the heresy that we're, we're dealing with here. Let's, let's look at a few other passages. Let's look at uh, chapter 4, 14 and 15. This is a positive spin on this. This is what you should believe. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in Him and He in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then the last passage I want to look at, dealing with this heresy that is beginning to circulate in the church, is it's turn over to 2 John. 2 John, verse 7. 2 John, verse 7 says this, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring his, this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. You see, in 1 John, John recognizes that there's two sets of itinerant ministers going throughout the land. There are those saying that Christ did not come in the flesh, he was not truly man, and there are those that John has sent out to combat these people. Those are the ministers of the true gospel. And as we look at this, and as, and as I, I struggle with this, with you know what to preach on, and, and the matter comes up, is this important? Is the humanity of Christ important? 
is it an essential that we must hold to, or is it just one of those things that we don't have to worry about very much? And if it is an essential, why is it an essential? Why is it essential that Christ had to come as man? And the church over the years has wrestled with this, and the church has come up with this big theological term. And I know that you know Bill never talks to you guys about theology. So this is new for you guys. You know, he's just atheological. You know, he doesn't talk to you about that kind of stuff. But the term is called hypostatic union. And this is what it means. That there are two natures in one man. The two natures being humanity and deity. Christ is, is God and he is man. And they are together, these two natures, in one person. And to some degree that's a mystery. But the question is, why is this so important that... John now has to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in response to this doctrine. Because he's compelled to write it because of his love for Christ. And here's why. And so if you're taking notes, there's three reasons. There's three reasons why the humanity of Christ is significant and essential. It is, a, it is an essential that we agree that Christ was both man and God. Okay? The first of which is that Christ had to be... And, and matter of fact, turn to the book of Hebrews. Because this is, this is the book that deals more with the humanity of Christ than any other place. Turn to Hebrews 2. And bear with me here, okay? Because this is, this, is, um, this is some hard theology. The humanity of Christ is important because Christ had to be a suitable sacrifice. Okay, a suitable sacrifice. And this is what I mean by that. Since it was man who sinned initially. If we look back in Genesis 3, we realize that Adam was a man and he brought sin into the world. And in the same way that man brought sin in, man was called to deal with sin. Okay? So if one man brought sin in, another man's going to have to bring it out. Okay? So we see that we sort of have a representative form of government to some degree. And some, we, we hear it called a federal head or something like that in, in the theology books. And you guys know what a representative government is because on Tuesday we're all going to go vote. Or, you know, a lot of us are. Some of us, I don't know, whatever. Anyway. Um, but Adam was the first man. And Christ is described in Romans 5 as the second Adam. Because if sin entered in through one man, it must be taken care of through another man. Here's another reason why he had to be a man. Moreover, the paying of the penalty involved the suffering of body and soul such as only man is capable of bearing. So the penalty for our sins is eternal suffering, which body and soul are a part of. And for that to happen, Christ had to be man. For him to be able to suffer in body and soul, he had to be man. That is significant. And we look at this in Hebrews 2, 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And it's, Notice what it says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Another passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, verse 22, this is... this really gets at the bodily suffering of Christ, okay? The sacrificial nature of His atonement. And this is what it says in 9.22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. We see that Christ had to be man, because if He wasn't man, He wouldn't bleed. And blood within the Old Testament and the New Testament is significant, because it is with the blood of Christ that we are washed. We are washed clean, through the blood of Christ. So the first thing is that he was a suitable sacrifice. He had to be man to be a suitable sacrifice. Second of which 
is that he had to be man because he had to be he had to be man to be the, the perfect high priest. If we are to expect Christ to be our perfect high priest, he had to be man. And here's why. <clears throat> I'm going to read something and then I'm going to clear it up because it's sort of wordy. It was necessary for Christ should assume human nature not only with all its essential properties, but also with the infirmities <clears throat> to which it is liable after the fall. And should thus descend to the depths of degradation into which man had fallen. What that means is Christ can now appeal for us. He can be the perfect sacrifice because he knows what's going on. He knows that when you're tempted, it's hard to say no. He has struggled. He has suffered. And so now, now as he's currently interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God the Father, he knows how to pray for us because he has been man and he knows the struggles of man. This is a significant teaching. The other one that's sort of related to that, I'm sorry, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, because I want to back this up with Scripture. 2, 17 and 18 says this. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ had to be our, our perfect high priest in the sense that he had to understand what we're going through. So he had to be man, he had to be a suitable sacrifice for the atonement. The other thing that, that we allude to is that he had to be the perfect sacrifice. Meaning that just as Adam ushered in sin, Christ as a man had to observe the law completely in order for him to be a perfect sacrifice. Because if Christ had sinned even in the least bit, even just once... He would be a blemished sacrifice and not worthy or not able to be a sacrifice for us. It's impossible. So, one, he had to be a suitable sacrifice. Second, to be a perfect high priest. And third, he had to be a perfect sacrifice without blemish. These are the things that John is writing, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, about. Because if your theology begins to erode, then your applications of that theology begins to erode as well. Because in 1 John, he wrote things like, um, well, turn back over to 1 John, and we'll look at it. 1 John 2.9 says this. 2.9, it says this. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. These people who were propagating this sort of theological heresy, if you will, were beginning to apply it. Meaning that they were saying, okay, if Christ didn't come in the flesh, that means he's spiritual. It means everything in the flesh is bad. Everything in the spirit is good. Which means I can do anything I want to in the flesh and my spirit's okay. I don't have to worry about that. So I can eat as much as I want to. I can, I can live a, a life that is, you know, sexually promiscuous. I can do whatever I want. And as a matter of fact, I can hate my brothers. Because it doesn't matter what I do here. You know, their theology began to erode. They're like, well, if Christ didn't come in the flesh, then what does it matter what I do in the flesh? And, and all these, all these heres, her, heresies come down. Now, our problem today is not so much that Christ came in the flesh. Because most, well, I'm not going to say most, but a lot of historians will agree to that. Even liberal historians. What most people struggle with was Christ really God. You know, we get the point that Christ was really man. But was Christ really God? And that's where we struggle. I'm going to leave that for another, another time. But I just wanted to talk about this one aspect, because this is what John is battling. John is battling a theological heresy which is beginning to permeate the church and the way that people in the church were treating each other and proclaiming the gospel. Does that make sense? So, and that's why he's writing this letter. Because if you look back in 1 John 2, 
2, verse 18, it says this. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. There are people leaving the church who believe in this. They say, you know, Christ really didn't come as a man. He was around, sort of spiritual, it's sort of, we're not really sure. But if you begin to take the man out of Christ, or if you begin to take the deity out of Christ, your view of the atonement, your view of, of um, how, we are, how we satisfy all those things, how we satisfy the wrath of God, how we become redeemed people, how we're adopted as sons, it all falls apart. So theology, theology is important. You know, I mean, some, some people will say, I don't think theology is that important. You know, just, I just love Jesus. Which is cool. I mean, you should love Jesus. But the fact is, if you love Jesus, you'll also love theology. Because a better understanding of who he is and why he did what he did will make you love him more. It did in John's case because it compelled John to write against heresies. Okay? Now, this is the situation. John's fighting this heresy. There are two groups going around. <clears throat> There's the group that John sent out, the people of the truth who are, who are proclaiming a correct gospel. And then there is the second group. And these are the people called the cessationists who are going around saying Christ did not come in the flesh. And that is why he wrote Second and Third John. Second John, he writes for this reason. There are Christians who are welcoming in people with bad doctrine. And he's saying, hey, don't welcome these people in. They've got bad doctrine, and they're promoting something other than what Christ lived and died for. And Third John, he's writing for just the opposite reason. He's saying, hey, by the way, take in all the good missionaries and be hospitable and serve them. Because they are furthering the kingdom of God. So let's go to Third John. We, actually, we can actually go into Third John now with a little bit of introduction. Third John is broken up into, into three. I'm going to break it up in three ways because it's spoken about three men. There's Gaius, there's Diotrephes, and there's Demetrius. The first of which is, is Gaius. And here's the point I want to make. The point I want to make is that the application of the truth, when we begin to take theology and apply it to ourselves, it results in the proclamation of the gospel. And in Gaius, here's how he proclaimed the gospel. Let's, let's read about him first of all. In the first eight verses, it says this, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers. Even though they are strangers to you, they have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way. In a manner worthy of God, it was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. What are the things? Let's observe some things about Gaius. First of all, he's called dear friend three times. Second of all, he's called a worker for the truth. Thirdly, he has been, he has been hospitable to those missionaries amidst opposition to diatrophies. And fourthly, if we look in... Um, in verse 4 it says, He is described as a child of the Apostle John's. Now I'm going to jump right to application here. Because what Gaius did in his application of the truth, and his being hospitable and sending out these, these missionaries, these people proclaiming the truth in a positive way, how does he advance the gospel? And I'm going to make this, this point this way. Is that we are very blessed in Lawrence to have many campus ministers. We have people from Navigators, we have people from Ichthus, we have people from Crusade, 
uh, we have people from InterVarsity. We have all these different places. There's probably a few more too. And these people all raise support. They all raise support in order to go out. We also have missionaries. We have missionaries that we send out, like like this goofy guy named Kelly Liebengood. You know, oh, hey, Kelly. Yeah. You know, Kelly is going to Costa Rica to train Latin pastors so that they can go out and disseminate the truth in Latin America and South America. Now, what Gaius does is he shows hospitality to these people. And then he says this in verse in verse 6, he says, They have told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Now, I want to tell you, um, when I talk to campus ministers, when I talk to people overseas who have raised support, we see from Scripture that it is our job. It is our job to support them. And when I've talked to... And I, you know, I grew up in campus ministry to some degree in college. I was involved in Campus Crusade. And then I know a lot of people on staff of the Campus Crusade. I knew a few people with NAVs. I know some people that I'd be... Of the people I know, I would say I probably know at least 100. Okay? I don't know one individual who is carrying full support right now. Not one. You know, isn't that startling? Because I can ask somebody, you know, what's your support? You know, and, and, and good friends of mine will actually tell me. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, that's none of your business. But, you know, good friends of mine will actually say, you know, I'm struggling. I, you know, I, I've talked to a guy who's working with the ministry, and I asked him how things were going. He said, things are really hard right now. I said, why? He said, because he had about five or six people drop off a support team, large supporters. I said, what do you have support-wise? He said, about 50%. 50% is what he's getting paid. And so here's the application, and we're going to just jump straight to application here. The application is, is twofold. One is to pray for these people. Pray, you know, and, and two is give them support. I'm going to go back to prayer, though. If you can't support these people financially, because, I mean, a lot of us are getting stretched in different ways, then pray for their support. You know, pray that their support would be raised up. Pray that these individuals would, would have support come in. Because that's how they live. You know, in, in verse... Oh, where is it? Uh, in verse 6, it says this, You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And in verse 8, it says this, We ought therefore to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Because when we partner with missionaries that we send out, we have a vital role in their ministry. Like we are actually partnering with them to reach the kingdom of God. And, and I use this because some of us are not able to go overseas. Some of us are not physically able and I'll use this illustration because they're, they're some of the best illustrations I have as far as like... And I use my in-laws. And this is a good in-law story, so don't be worried. But my in-laws... Um, my, my mother-in-law, who's a very godly woman... Um, get that on tape. She's a very godly woman. Good. Good enough. I love her a lot. Okay. All right. She has juvenile diabetes. Her blood sugar is all over the place. You know, and she has to be near medicine. And she has to be near a hospital in order for her to live, okay? Like, she is not capable of going overseas to a remote area. She is not physically capable of going someplace and ministering the word in that capacity. But her and my, my father-in-law, um, he's a great guy too. Good. Um, he's a great guy too. They support a lot of missionaries. And they have sort of assimilated this viewpoint into their life that when they support missionaries, they are actively being a part of the proclamation of the gospel of truth. They realize that through their support and their prayer... Oh, yeah, you know what? Gene McClure gave me this after the first service, sorry. 
Here's a little thing we have about our missionaries, too. This is out on the kiosks. If you want one, go get one. This is how to pray for our missionaries. Okay, because I said this, and I just want to make sure I said that for Jean. But my in-laws have so assimilated the fact that when they give support and when they pray for missionaries, they are an active participant in the faith. They are an active participant of the missionaries that they support. And that's really cool. So the first application point in 3 John is he's talking to Gaius and he says, Hey, these missionaries are coming to you. Send them out in a manner worthy of God, for you are partners in the truth together. John is consumed with truth in 3 John. Truth comes up five times. Um, and I'm not going to... Can, you can look at them a second. But secondly, there's, there's a, there's, this letter is written to a guy named Diotrephes. It's written to Gaius about Diotrephes. And this is what Diotrephes is like. Let's, let's read about him in 9 and 10. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Let's list some things about Diotrephes here. First, he loves to be first. Secondly, he wants nothing to do with the Apostle John. Thirdly, he is gossiping maliciously about those individuals. Fourthly, he refuses to welcome the brethren. He shows no hospitality. And fifthly, he is excommunicating, putting out of the church those who are helping the missionaries. The last four stem from the first one. The first one being, he loves to be first. He wants nothing to do with the Apostle John because he wants to be first. He doesn't want to submit himself to any authority above him. The second of which, gossiping maliciously, he is gossiping about other individuals to raise himself up and lower them. He thinks about himself first. He refuses to welcome the brethren. He doesn't want anybody else preaching the truth. He thinks he, thinks he has the truth, the market on the truth cornered. He doesn't want anybody else coming in and gathering believers. And the last one, he is excommunicating those who are being hospitable to true missionaries. All of these things stem back to the fact that he loves to be first. Turn with me to Philippians 2. This is, this is a... Um, Diotrephes is hard because we recognize the things that he is doing are wrong. The first of which, though, is he loves to be first. Let's read about Christ, though, in chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In one sense, I just, I just, I just mentioned by Gaius that if we understand the truth, the reality of the gospel of truth, if we apply that to our lives, it results in the proclamation of the gospel. Misapplication, in the case of Diotrephes, results in a stunted, or it stunts the proclamation of the gospel. It warps the gospel. Because it says, I want to be first, but the gospel says this, that Christ, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became man. 
Now, and this is really, really hard because as I think about this, this hits home with me more than anything else. Because it says, Diotrephes loves to be first. And you and I know that, well, maybe you and I know that I love to be first anyway. But all of us love to be first. As a matter of fact, I have um, an almost three and a half and an almost two-year-old at home. Benjamin and Hannah. And I'm going to give you an illustration. I can use my kids as illustrations because they have no idea what this does. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to ask for permission, I don't think. But anyway, my kids, uh, Hannah and Benjamin, play together pretty well. Benjamin's older, Hannah's younger. If Hannah has something, and this is, um, again, this is a misapplication of the truth. If, if Hannah has something, Benjamin goes over to her and takes it. You know, whatever it is, doesn't matter. You know, if it's a Lego or something like that, he goes and grabs it, and they go, Hey, Benjamin, what are you doing? And he looks at me, and this is, he goes, God wants us to share. <laughs> I'm like, yes, he does, Benjamin. He certainly does want us to share. And, but I don't think you're quite getting what it means. He said, but God wants us to share. He wants him to share right now, as a matter of fact. And I go, oh, I don't know about that. You know, like maybe God wants you to share with Hannah. You know, the truth is that Hannah will come up to him and grab it and not ask and just run away. You know, she doesn't even have a good theological answer yet. You know what I mean? Um, Or a misapplication of theology yet. But this is hard because, you know, when it talks about humility... You know, that's something that Diotrephes lacked. He lacked humility because he loved to be first. And this is really hard for us. Because as I begin to think about my relationship with God the Father, if I begin to think about my relationship um, with God, I begin to realize that I do want to be first. That I like to set myself up as a God in my own image. That I like to worship at my own altar. That I think more highly of myself than anybody else. And if that weren't bad enough... Then I begin to reflect about my marriage. And I start to think, do I love my wife more than myself? And if that weren't bad enough, I think about my children. And I go, do I love my children more than myself? Because the truth is, I come home, I'm tired, and I want to lay on the couch. (laughs) You know, and the kids just want to sit in my lap and read. And if that weren't bad enough... You know, and, and the other thing with the kids is that, you know, then you, you rejoice in putting them to bed. For those of you who know what's going on, you're like, but for guys, okay, this is just my own sin. Okay, I'm just confessing to you guys. This is my sin. I put my kids to bed. I go, now I can go watch football. You know, so I'm sitting there in football, and then my wife wants to talk to me. And then I'm like, oh, come on, you know, and that's just my own sin. Because I don't love, I'm not loving her more than myself. I'm not loving my children more than myself. And if that weren't bad enough, I begin to think about my, my parents. You know, do I love my parents more than myself? You know, do, do I love them? And do I look out for them more than myself, even though I'm called to? Do I do that? Then I look at my coworkers, you know, like Bill, you know, the reprobate that he is. You know, do I love him? You know, do, do, I, do I love him, you know, more than myself? It only takes me like 10 seconds to have like a whole list of things to repent of when I begin to think about that. And so as we look at Diotrephes and we look at Gaius, and then we look at Demetrius as a positive example, you know, I'm humbled because I realize my own sin. And then as I realize my own sin, I recognize my, my utter need of a Savior. And I realize that I do love myself more than anybody else. And that I need to repent of that and ask for help. Because it's hard. The third individual... The third individual is Demetrius. And uh, let's read about Demetrius real quickly. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. 
Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, Demetrius, what do we know about him? First, that he's well spoken of. The second of which I think we can infer here, because in verse 11 it says, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And then he talks about it, and then he goes to Demetrius. And John is saying, Gaius, do you see Demetrius? Model yourself after Demetrius. And this is not uncommon in Scripture, because in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. As we look at 3 John, I think there's a, there, to some degree there's a model of discipleship there. He's saying, are you modeling yourself after men who are encouraging you in the faith? And this is a message to us. The application point is not difficult here. The application point is this. Are we picking our heroes correctly? Do we have older people pouring into us? You know, in, the, in the first service I said, I'm not going to call them old women. I'm going to call them mature women. And Kathy Plumley and Connie Nagin, who were sitting right here, started to nod at me. Yeah, they were like, yeah, that's right, but we were not going to call us old, you know. But, are you, you know, women, are you going to women's Bible study? Are you allowing yourself to be poured in by older women? To be encouraged in the faith? To be nurtured? Are you picking your heroes correctly? Guys, you know, are you picking your heroes? You know, who are you, who are you with right now? Who is pouring into your life? Yeah, there's also a model here, too. If you go, go back to Gaius, because in verse 4 it says this. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He calls Gaius one of his children. John calls Gaius one of his children. And this is, these are the implications here. We should all have children in the faith. Because as Demetrius is an example for us, who is pouring into our lives, in the same turn we should be turning around and we should have children in the faith. Meaning that there are younger believers than us who we are pouring into. Um, this past week I was talking to a gal who has a sister that just left for college. Um, she's come through our youth group and I was asking her, I was like, hey, how is, I'm not going to embarrass her, how is such and such doing? And she goes, she is doing really well. Like, because I asked her what's going on and all she talks about is her IV group. All she talks about is InterVarsity. She talks about her Bible study. She talks about her fellowship. And, and it's awesome. And you can just see the delight in her face. I mean, I just rejoice in that. I rejoice in the fact that when students leave our ministry, they continue to mature in their faith. In the same way, I was at NAVS um, this past week. I forget where I am sometimes. But I was at NAVS, and I kept seeing students that I knew from high school ministry. And I'm like, that's awesome. You know, that great, gave me great delight and joy. And I'm not saying that it was, I'm, not, I'm not responsible for that. But I'm just saying I rejoice greatly in that. I rejoice greatly in seeing kids that have come up that I've worked with at least some continuing to mature in the faith. So in the same way as we have, do you have an example? Are we pouring into others? Do we have children in the faith for discipleship? I want to, um, one of the things about the, the whole example thing, you know, do we have a Demetrius in our life? You know, do we have a Demetrius who's pouring into us? When I was coming out of seminary, I had um, a couple different job offers. And it was really funny uh, because I had all these job offers on the East Coast and then, like, one out here in Kansas. You know, and I'm from the East Coast, you know, so I, you know, I thought of Kansas like, oh, man, I want to go to Kansas. I know they play basketball out there, but they sure don't play football. <laughs> you know, that is for sure. And so... I'm thinking, I don't want to really, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to Kansas, you know. And so, you know, I was emailing back and forth with Bill, and, you know, I was telephoning him, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's all good. But you're in Kansas. 
You know, like, nah, I don't want to go there. You know, and all these other jobs were sort of on the East Coast and stuff. And and I was I was talking to this guy named Mike Glodo. Mike Glodo is the head of our denomination at this point. But when I knew him, he was a seminary professor of mine. And Mike hooked me up with Bill. And so I was talking to Mike one day, and and uh, and Mike said, "Hey, you talking to Bill?" I said, "Yeah, but it's Kansas, Mike. I don't want to move to Kansas. We gotta get like a basement, like a hurricane or some kind of tornado shelter or something. This is scary out there, isn't it?" And the Wizard of Oz, I mean, it's just scary. That's, that's all the jokes I get when I go back home, by the way. Um, but Mike said this, and this is, this is very poignant. And this is, I mean, to some degree, this is a huge reason why he came here. Mike said this, he, and Mike's a, a, a very godly uh, leader. And, uh, and he's, he was talking to me, he, says, he said, Boomer, he said, you know, there's probably 15, 20, 25 guys that I know that I would recommend that you work for. That it would be beneficial for you to sit under and learn how to do ministry underneath these men. He said... He said, but me, you know, I'm a seminary professor. There's probably two or three guys in the whole world I would submit to and get behind. He said, Bill is one. He said, I will get behind Bill. And so for me, I was like, whoa, that's pretty crazy. And so as I came out here and I, and I, and I was looking for a Demetrius, essentially. I was looking for somebody that would pour into me. So I can learn how to minister and model my ministry after him so that in turn I can receive from him and then give to other people. Now that's a model of ministry. And in in campus groups, we we get that model of ministry. Well, let me just say one thing to the college students because I realized that coming out of college, I thought I understood what ministry was supposed to be. Like when you come out of college and you guys get involved in churches um, and nobody calls you to hang out with you (laughs) one-on-one... When nobody says, hey, you want to go do lunch or something like that? You know, don't be discouraged, but rather seek somebody out. Get involved in the men's and women's Bible studies. And through that interaction, you'll get to hang out with older people. You know, search for Demetrius. You know, and, and, and on campus, it's awesome. Because you got, like, the, these great guys like Mark McElmurray and Matt Podsis and Brad Supple. I mean, they're pursuing you, and it's awesome. And then when you get to church, nobody's pursuing you. You know, it's like, I'm waiting Come to me. Here I am. The truth is, once you get into the church, it's going to be a little bit harder. You're going to have to pursue that relationship. You're going to have to be around guys and go find a Demetrius who can pour into you so that in turn you can pour into other people. The other thing, too, is that when you get into the church after college and nobody's pursuing you, don't begin to grumble, but rather see how you can minister to others. You know, that's a good, that's a good lesson for all of us. You know, so the three application points for Third John. First of which, are we supporting our missionaries? Are we praying for them? Are we sending them out in a manner worthy of God? Secondly, this is the hard one. When you think about humility, well, not, not humility, I'm sorry. Do you love to be first? Like diatrophies. Do you love to be first? And the third, the third point is... Where are you in terms of discipleship? Do you have older people pouring into you? Or are you pouring into younger people? That's sort of the message of Third John. And this was all going on in the midst of heresy in the church. Don't ever think, I hear people sometimes say, I wish we were back like the first century church. No, you don't. First century church had problems too. They're just different. And we now know that what John was talking about is true. So, be encouraged. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you love us and that you died for us. And that even...
even though we love to be first, and we love ourselves more than anybody else, that you forgive us through Christ. Thank you that when we repent of our own sin, we have Christ to worship. Father, show us our own sin. Give us a sensitive conscience to know when we are in sin, when we are harming others. Father, help us. Help us to pray for our missionaries. Help us to send them out in a manner worthy of God. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would connect us in the chain of discipleship. Father, help us with all these things, because as we look at our own lives, we realize we are in want. So, Father, we, we come before you humbly, asking that you might help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.